There's a word in the Pali language that we we refer to. Uh, We use this language a lot because it's the the source of the teachings that we draw on for what we offer here. And there's a word that I love that speaks to one of the most powerful, uh, for me, aspects of the Buddhist teachings. It's a word that's used as a reflection for one of the qualities of the Dhamma, of the teachings. And the word is ehipasiko. And uh, its root, part of its root, the word ehi, that part of it, means come. And when the Buddha was first ordaining the, the very first nuns and monks, the way they were ordained was ehi bhikkhu, ehi bhikkhuni, come. That's all they, he, he did. Uh, later on it became a more, um, there's more to that ordination. But in the early days it was just that, come. And the pasiko uh, means um, to, has to do with seeing. So it's, the word basically means come and see or come see for yourself. And this is the way the teachings are always offered. It's the way we hold them as a, as a team is it's an offering for you to come and see for yourself. So there's never, never anything about these, the teachings and the Buddha's time or since that had to do with adopting some kind of uh, belief or letting go of a belief necessarily. We might see through it, but it's not a requirement at the outset. And uh, there's something very powerful in this. It's always, check it out. Look for yourself. See for yourself if there is value in this, if it has application and meaning in your life. And the spiritual life is often spoken about as a journey, a journey that we each would take. This is true in Buddhism, and it's true in many other traditions. And we can see this, the way I see this is that there are uh, beings who have powerful experiences, understanding, feel moved for one reason or another to teach that, and they point as best they can to something that's very difficult to point to out of their culture, using the language of their time, and it's expressed in different ways, but they're all pointing at the same thing. They all want us to look at the same thing. And there often is this sense of uh, a journey, walking a path. And the Buddha spoke in one place in the text, he, he declared that he was the knower of the path, the one who sees the path, the guide along the path. And this journey when we're using this image, this metaphor, then often it's described as a journey home. And the Buddha's realization is likened to reaching one's true home, arriving at one's real home, true home. And if we think about what that might feel like or be like to reach our true home, for me it brings uh, connotations of of arriving at a place of ease and rest, a place where body, mind, and heart can really deeply relax, fully relax. It's like if we have a good home and we go in the door, we can 
take a sigh of relief, a deep kind of relaxation and ease in that image. And so if we use this metaphor, adopt this metaphor of the spiritual life as a journey to our true home, a journey home, then we can see ourselves walking this path, taking this journey, walking a path that leads to the deepest possible ease, to peace, to freedom. Now, I think this is actually quite a a useful and beautiful uh, metaphor, image for the spiritual life, for our practice. And, And yet at the same time, we have to be careful not to hold it too literally. Because it's not that we go somewhere different than where we are, or that we get something that we don't already have. That's not what this is about. We, we end up right where we started. But what happens is that our understanding changes. That's the path we walk to, a different kind of understanding, you could say. And so if we set out on a journey and we want to reach our destination, or maybe before we set out on a de- journey, in thinking about this, if we want to uh, take a journey to our true home in this way I'm speaking about it, there are two things we have to do. If we want to get there, we have to actually start walking. We have to set out on the journey. We can't just sit around thinking about it, planning our route, looking at maps, whatever. We have to actually start walking. And we have to set out in the right direction. Because we're not going to get to our true home if we're walking the wrong way. If we're heading in the wrong direction, we're not going to get there. We might even get lost, lose our way. Might run into all kinds of problems, dangers even, difficulties. So luckily in this set of teachings, which is just one, it's not the only one, many paths, but in this uh, set of teachings, the Buddha gave us some good directions. He gave lots of directions. He, gets, he talked about it in a lot of different ways because we're all different and we might hear one way or another clearly. But one place we find a good set of directions is in the very core teachings that uh, really really go to the heart of, of the, what the Buddha talked about in terms of what are called the Four Noble Truths, which culminate in the teachings of what's called the Eightfold Noble Path. And the teaching of this Eightfold Noble Path offers us a set of practices that allow us to um, understand the nature of suffering in our lives, in the world, the cause of that, a way to abandon that cause, to realize the cessation of it, and through this to realize the possibility of liberation of mind and heart or freedom, or the deepest possible ease or peace, all the different ways that we might try to speak about this. And so I think it's important to remember that the the teachings in in this, um, eightfold path, these teachings, you know, we can, we can relate to them as, as an aspect of, of Buddhist philosophy, some kind of theoretical understanding, or another list that we're supposed to memorize if we're being a good Buddhist. And 
miss the fact that it's actually a both a description of and a framework for uh, a way that we can relate to our practice. There's something we actually engage with in the meditation in our lives. They're very broad. They apply to our life in a very broad way. <clears throat> and we need to bear in mind that it's not a linear progression. You do this one, then you do that one, then you do the next one. A more useful way to see these uh, eight path factors is as strands of an interwoven cable that support and inform one another. And so it would be easy to give a talk on each of each one of these path factors. Each one could be uh, spoken about, elaborated uh, in itself. I'm not going to pick one. I'm going to use this teaching, hopefully in a simple way, for seeing how our practice unfolds, hopefully in a, a direct and, and at least somewhat practical way. So in the way this, these eight path factors are usually listed, they come in three groups. And the first of these is, is the, what is called often the wisdom group. There are two factors here. The first of these is right or wise view. And I'll use the Pali because I think it's nice to hear the, the Pali words. Samma is the word right or wise. Samaditi, wise view, and right intention, samasankapa. Sometimes that's translated as right thought. And these factors address the orientation of, um, of our mind, you could say, and they, lead, they can lead us to a, a really a powerful shift in perspective, something that we've touched on already, worth uh, looking at again. Through his exploration, the Buddha, um, you know, through really he was drawn to um, his journey through an exploration of what we could call the fundamental existential questions of what it is to be human and what it means to be born and live and then die and uh, where is there meaning to be found in in our life and these these kinds of questions that often lead to struggle and worry and tension in our lives. And through his exploration, he made a powerful discovery that is really um, opens the doorway to the practice and to the possibility of finding freedom through that. And I've, I've spoken about this, others uh, have spoken about this, but it's worth looking at again. This key understanding that he discovered is that suffering and non-suffering in our lives in relation to experience, the key to understanding this is to be found within our relationship to experience. And Rebecca spoke about this very directly last night in terms of clinging and non-clinging. This is one of the hardest things for us to really fully understand and, and bring into our lives because our conditioning is very, very strong to look outside ourselves for both the source of our struggles and suffering, the source of stress in our lives. We look for the source of it outside ourselves and we look for the um, solution to it outside of ourselves. Our conditioning is really strong. But what the Buddha discovered, what we discover through our practice, is that the key to understanding this, 
the key to freedom is looking at our relationship to experience, to life, to what's, what comes to us in a life. And this understanding can lead to a really transformational shift in how we relate to experience. It leads us to be able to look at experience not so much in terms of good and bad, judgments we make and what we like and don't like and want and don't want. It's not that we have to get rid of those preferences, but we start to see things also more broadly in terms of suffering and non-suffering, how suffering arises, how non-suffering comes to be. And this reorientation of how we look at things marks, you could say, the first step in the spiritual journey along the Buddha's path in terms of what we might call right view. This understanding that the key to this underst- to uh, peace and freedom, to suffering, non-suffering, is to be found within our relationship to experience. So this understanding then brings the factor, the second of these wisdom factors, right intention into play. And you could say that intention is the uh, energy or mental factor which links this understanding to something we might do. It leads to action. You could say it is what would actually get us to begin a journey to understand. The intention to do something, to set out, to take the first steps on the path. And so if we combine these two first path factors, an understanding, a right view in terms of where suffering, non-suffering are to be found, and the intention to actually engage with a practice to try to explore this, then this leads to the second section of the Eightfold Path, which has three parts. And these are mainly the teachings on how we conduct our lives, how we live in the world. The teachings on ethical conduct, sila. And these are broken down in this teaching to right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And this, in a very simple, direct way, is um, about creating harmony in our lives, in the world, by not intentionally adding to the suffering of the world through our speech, through actions that we do, and through uh, the way we earn our living, through our livelihood. We pay attention to how we're living, creating harmony in our lives in the world. And then this section, this understanding of of how we live, this commitment to living carefully, leads to the third section, third group. Again, three factors, so it's two, three, three in this ordering. And these are called the concentration group. And here we're concerned with uh, the meditative practices and bhavana, mind development. These three factors are right effort, right energy or effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So there's, a, there's an interesting relationship with, uh, between these factors that um, is illustrated in this um, simile from one of the commentaries. It's a, like a story in this image, in this simile. Uh, three children go to a park to play and while they're walking along, they see a tree 
a flowering tree and decide they want to uh, pick some flowers, but they, they can't reach them. They're beyond the reach of even the tallest of the children. So uh, one, one of them bends down and offers his back. The tallest child climbs up on, on the back of, of the one who's <coughs> kneeled down and, and is taller but is, is hesitant to reach because of um, losing balance. And so then the third child comes over and offers her shoulder for support. And so then the first child standing on the back of the second and stabilizing with the shoulder of the third uh, is able to reach up and gather the flowers. So we can picture this, how this might work, this sort of tripod that's created there. And so it's said that in this simile, the tall child who's actually able to pick the flowers is, uh, represents concentration, the function of unifying the mind, but needing support in these in two ways, needing the, the support of energy from right effort, which is the child who offers the, his back to climb up on, and also needs uh, the stability, the balance uh, provided by mindful awareness, which is like the child who offers her shoulder to help with the balance there. So these factors are woven together, they work together, And they result, when they're brought into balance and uh, developed, they result in a certain uh, stability of mind, we could say. A non-distracted attention, a non-distracted awareness that allows us to, uh, allows the mind to rest more easily and fully on whatever object is there. To, you could say, allows us to actually connect with our life and to actually stay present with what's happening long enough that understanding and insight have a chance to arise. We need that stability. So you could say that the meditative practices that are represented by this, this, these three factors, steady and calm the mind, bring a certain dis- non-distracted energy there, a stability when with my, a mind that so often, so much of the time is preoccupied with trying to fix and arrange experience to be a certain way, so it suits how we, our desires, our ideas about how it's supposed to be. It's so often so caught up in judging and assessing, reacting. So it, it calms this tendency, it brings a certain stability there. And so applying effort, mindfulness, concentration in this uh, way that they support one another, the mind and heart start to settle down a little bit. And this allows us to see how our mind functions. We start to see how, how uh, habits of reactivity operate in our mind and how they often run our world we see really directly that all actions that we take have their genesis in the mind. A famous uh, line from one of the the teachings in the Dhammapada, the collection of teachings in verse form, mind is the forerunner of all things. All actions have their genesis in the mind. And so 
just through connecting with our experience, not having it needing to be any particular way, with our moment opening to our moment to moment experience, with this uh, stability, we start to see how our inner world functions. And through this, there's a natural relaxing, settling, letting go that starts to happen that isn't the result so much of an act of will or something that we do. But it really results from clearly seeing what's happening, how the mind functions, how what's working, and the way that these habitual patterns of reactivity function and lead to struggle and suffering in our lives. So you could say through the process of seeing what is seeing what are the causes of struggle, stress, suffering in our lives, it, it deconditions the tendency of grasping, clinging, resistance. And we feel the, the suffering and we, there's a natural inclination to let go of the causes there. Like we, the mind, the heart doesn't want to suffer and if it sees a way uh, and to let go of it, it will do that. It does that naturally. And through this process, we start to begin not only to find some ease, some relaxation, but we start to touch the possibility that this, the direction of this path is heading towards the deepest possible peace, the peace I described in, in this journey to our true home, our real home, complete freedom, from suffering, the peace and freedom of uh, Nibbana, the fruit of the Buddha's awakening, you could say. Now we hear this word Nibbana, Nirvana in Sanskrit, and you know, it's been it's kind of out there in the vernacular, used in all kinds of ways. We might wonder, what is this freedom? What is this talking about? What does it mean? And there are all kinds of um, descriptions, often quite poetic, some of them, but uh, there's one very simple description. Extinction of greed, extinction of hate, extinction, extinction of delusion. This is called Nibbana. So in other words, if these energies of greed, hatred, and delusion, if they're no longer holding sway over our mind and heart, no longer running the show, then we, one experiences the deepest happiness, the deepest possible peace. This word Nibbana, Pali word, literally means something like to cease blowing or to go out. And it's likened uh, to a fire that goes out when its fuel is exhausted. And Rebecca used this image last night in her talk. If we don't feed the fires of clinging, grasping, it goes out by itself. It's a really, actually very useful image, an apt description for uh, this process. When we no longer feed the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, they go out by themselves, like a fire that goes out when when it exhausts its fuel. If nothing is feeding them, they, they just fall away, they go out. Apparently there was a colloquial use of this word that had to do with something cooling, has to do with cooling, like let the rice nibbana before we eat it. 
So you could say, it's getting really cooled out. This uh, releasing these, the release from these energies when they're not uh, operating, not running the show, not driving the bus of our lives. Do we even hold this as some kind of real possibility? And this is all the Buddha was ever interested in pointing to. All of his teachings, it was always, this is possible. And if it wasn't possible, I wouldn't ask you to try to do it. That's all he ever was trying to um, teach us, this possibility and the way to realize it. What would it be like if these energies were no longer present, didn't arise in the mind and heart? Or if they did arise, were completely powerless, had no power over the mind? You know, and we hear this and we can make the mistake, I think, of setting this um, possibility, if we, if we relate to it at all, this kind of freedom, as way far off. Maybe something for some people, special monks or nuns, maybe the happy Sayadaw that we talk about, special being and you've got to live to be 99 and only weigh 50 pounds and... Uh, or something like that, you know, beyond the scope of what we might imagine or anything we could possibly think of experiencing. But if we look at our experience here on retreat and meditation, we might see that there are times when we get a taste of of this freedom. We get some sense of what the Buddha was pointing to and there might be very brief moments but moments when these energies are not arising, when they're actually not present, when they don't arise. And there's just pure presence, the flow of our life, the knowing of it, and there's no reactivity there. It's just this, in a very simple way. And we get a taste of what the Buddha was pointing to, this possibility, this potential that we have. And the great Thai forest monk, Ajahn Buddhadasa, called it momentary Nibbana. And we might be able to even imagine abiding in this kind of, I don't even want to call it a state, but abiding with this understanding in the midst of our daily life. You know, we're, while we're shopping at the store or, or washing the dishes or something. And I think we, we tend to imagine the, hold the idea of enlightenment if we have any relationship to it at all as, you know, in our in our mind, there's we have this this idea that it's like will float away or dissolve into a mist of white light or something, and it would be kind of cool here in the hall <laughs> to you know slowly start floating up and then maybe just dissolve the rainbow light and float out through the ceiling. It would be impressive if I could do that here. <laughs> And it may be coming before the end of this talk, but I, I, I'm not sure. It doesn't feel that likely this evening, but um, but we have this it's, we have this image of something like that. But you know, the Buddha didn't float away or dissolve. He still had to live his life. He had to go on alms round every day and hope that people felt interested enough and moved to put some food in his bowl. He had to wake up with a stiff back. He had back trouble. 
He had to deal with difficult people in situations that he probably would have preferred to have avoided. You know, he had to live a life. We all have a life to live. The Buddha's liberation doesn't mean escaping from life. Life goes on with its joys and sorrows and good days and bad days. But suffering in relation to that, that's a whole other question. That's where we have some room to maneuver, you could say. So these root causes of stress, suffering in our lives, greed, hatred, and delusion, what are called kilesas, translated often as defilements of mind, but a lot of times we don't like that word. We don't want to think of having defilements. Kilesa, I'll use that word. They show up in, on three levels, you could say. So the first way is in terms of how we're behaving in the world. This is, uh, in one text there, it's called the level of transgression. It's where we're actually acting these energies out, acting them out. Where these energies are running the show and they lead to actions of body or speech. Then there's a second, more subtle level. Sometimes it's trans- called the obsessive level. And that's where they're arising, the energies are arising in the mind. They come up, but we have enough presence of mind that we're not acting them out. There's that restraint that we're not, they're not running the show. They're showing up, but they're not in charge. And then a third level, more subtle, uh, again, sometimes called latent tendencies or their latent manifestation, where they're not present, they're not manifesting, but their potential for them to come up is there. And given the right conditions, they will show up again. Sometimes an image that's used, it's like mud that has settled to the bottom of a pond, but if a stormy weather or something comes along and stirs it up, it'll show up again. It'll get stirred up. It's not here now, but the potential in certain situation, if the right button gets pushed, they'll show up. They're not eradicated, but they're in a dormant state. And I had a great example of this once when I was on, uh, in, I was on retreat along, I was living as a monk on a long period of practice in Burma and I, I had my own little hut and, um, I would often wake up very early and, and meditate for a few hours before sunrise, before I would go to, um, uh, we would have a, a bit of an early morning snack. And, um, and I was sitting meditating. It was, I was meditating for you know, two or three hours and uh, really cooled out. Very shanti, everything. Ah, yes. <laughs> very nice. And at this time, we had been told we had to turn on our porch lights because someone had broken into one of the huts. Um, and so they said, we want to discourage this from happening. So everyone has to turn on their outside porch light, and leave it on all night. Well, the power doesn't run all night. <laughs> so the light was on for a while early on and the light attracts insects and insects attract geckos of which there are tons in some parts of Burma. And, because they like to eat the bugs and they're, but they like to drop legs and wings and things. <laughs> they don't eat it all, <laughs> they're messy. <laughs> so I, I wake up and, and, and bug parts attract other bugs. <laughs> so I step out the door in the morning, cooled out, shanti shanti. 
and my legs are suddenly covered with, there's this one really little ant that eats live prey and can reduce a, a lizard to a skeleton and you know, they're, they're voracious, they're tiny and they swarm and they can reduce a lizard to a skeleton in a minute, you know, I mean, they're really impressive. And they, you know, ah, a really big lizard has just stepped out <laughs> among us and suddenly my leg, feet and legs are covered with these things and their bite is really painful. And so suddenly my shanti, uh, you know, my, the, dar- the latent uh, kvases arose <laughs> suddenly <laughs> with great vigor of, ah, you know, aversion in the mind. <laughs> this is the latent way, you know. It wasn't there before, but showed up. These ants are incredible. One time they, I'm the favorite food of biting insects. I'm, I'm one of the few people I know who's been bitten by ladybugs. <laughs> but one time I was, I was sitting in the hall, I was a monk listening to a Dharma talk, Upandita was giving a talk, and I was sitting there, and this line of these little ants was, had come to my mat <laughs> and up, and had, they, they're drawn to kind of warmth and moist stuff, and where your robes go across, there's kind of this roll, and they got under there, and they were, they were trying to kill and eat me. <laughs> During this Dharma talk, you know, and I'm sort of trying to inch my, my mat back and, and, you know, trying to do something about this without, you know, disturbing the situation. It was so, I had these unbelievable welts on my body. Anyway, it's not like that has to happen to you if you go there. But my point in these stories is the latent uh, tendencies that can get stirred up with the right... Uh, the right conditions. So the factors of the path then directly address these. Um, <laughs> directly address these um, kilesas on these three levels, and we arrange the path factors in a different order at this point, and they get and it's a very classic, um, what's called the training in sila samadhi panya, which is a a classic way that we hold the Eightfold Path. And so the sila path factors address the transgressive uh, level where we might be acting out these energies. And so that's the commitment to how ethical conduct, right speech, right action, right livelihood. So we're engaging with the precepts and this commitment to harmony, commitment to living without harming, which is the basis for our practice. And you know, if we're acting out these energies, we aren't going to be able to uh, work with the mind states that give rise to them. We're, we're, too, we're past that point. So the sila factors allow us to then begin to um, relate to the, the mental energies, the second level of, of uh, the way these, these energies arise in the uh, obs- what we call the, what I was calling the obsessive level where they're um, arising in the mind and we meet them there with the uh, samadhi factors of uh, effort concentra- mindfulness and concentration so this is the level this is where we're this is where we're mostly working in our uh, meditation practice um, as you've probably noticed we're meeting these energies different ways that they show up. 
in our in the mind. And so these tools of, of effort, mindfulness, concentration, they allow us to actually be able to, to meet these energies, to actually sit with them without having uh, being compelled to act out, out act them out. So we sit with anger and frustration and boredom and desire, confusion, and so forth. We open to them, we get to know them, understand how they manifest without acting on them, without turning away from them, without trying to manipulate things so we don't have to feel them, which usual strategies for how we deal, try to deal with these energies. And we start to see that if we are willing to meet them and sit with them as they arise, allow them to arise and to pass away, which they do, that there's a, this relaxing and unbinding starts to actually happen on its own. Their grip on our mind and heart starts to loosen. And so we start to see that, there, that through the application of these um, samadhi factors, there's a certain stability of mind that comes from the steady application of them. And there are times when concentration reads, reaches a certain, you could say, level of strength, a certain level of stability um, is arrived at where, where there's no space for these uh, difficult energies to arise. They, they can't get in there. They're held at bay for periods of time, not necessarily extended, but for periods of time, there's no space for them. They're held at bay by the strength of our mindfulness and concentration and the energy that we bring there. And this can be very sweet, periods of time where, where we settle into uh, this kind of stable, more purified mind, heart. Sometimes it's called the bliss of seclusion and times when the mind abides secluded from these difficult energies. And it can be very restful and peaceful there. They're held at bay for a time. Now these are temporary conditioned states. They arise due to conditions that come together and they'll pass away when things change and we've seen this. And it's not a problem or a sign of failure when this happens, we have to be careful we don't see it that way. Given the right conditions, these energies will come back again, they'll come back because of this latent dormant existence. So concentration, these factors that lead to development of concentration, it can hold them at bay, suppress them for a time, but it doesn't ultimately uproot or eradicate them. And given the right conditions, they come back. And so this third level, the latent tendency level, is addressed by the wisdom factors because it's wisdom that has the potential to actually uproot them. Now this wisdom is not born of thought or, or an intellect, it's not just an intellectual wisdom, although our intellect has a, is in there, it's not like it doesn't have a role. We bring our intelligence and uh, understanding on that level uh, to bear, but it, it's um, an intuitive kind of understanding, an intuitive wisdom that arises, and as I've been saying, it's a natural, organic process that results from our willingness to show up and meet our life, meet experience as it is. 
So I've been speaking about greed, hatred, and delusion as these root causes of suffering in our lives. But there's a, there's a kind of uh, confusion or delusion that um, is more fundamental, underlies uh, even those uh, root causes that is um, addressed by the wisdom of insight, we call insight understanding. Insight meditation is the practice we're doing. And this is a a deeply uh, rooted misunderstanding that shows up in three ways. It takes that which is impermanent to be permanent, that which is incapable as serving as a source of lasting peace or happiness to be capable of doing so, and that which is not self to be self. And so, with the application of the, the, uh, the factors of the path and the wisdom factors supported by concentration, mindfulness, energy, we start to see how this fundamental misunderstanding is operating in our lives. And, and this takes us to the level of insight knowledge, what we could call true insight knowledge, where we start to very directly, viscerally, cellularly, experience the impermanent, unsatisfactory, unreliable, and coreless nature of conditioned experience. And it's the understandings that come from this that have the potential to actually uproot these uh, kilesas, to liberate the mind and heart. And so as we've been saying the whole retreat, if we, as we start to pay attention to our experience, we see that everything that arises in the mind, in the body, in the world, internally, externally, is in a state of flux, of change, of constant change. Everything, if it is of the nature to arise, it is also of the nature to pass away. This truth of anicca, impermanence. And in meditation, there are times when we start to see the rapidity of this change. It's actually changing extremely rapidly. Through seeing this change in this very direct way, we start to see that there's nothing in that flow of change that we can hold on to as a reliable source of happiness or peace because it doesn't last long enough. Nothing lasts long enough. Because it's so subject to change, it's not reliable. So there's no one thing that comes up that we can say, ah, this is it now. It may be pleasant and fine and good in the moment, but it won't last long enough that we can say, this is it, now I've got it. It will fall away, it will pass away. So that's seeing the truth of dukkha, this unreliability. And we start to see into what, what in, in a way is the most fundamental um, delusion or misunderstanding of all, which is that of taking what is not a permanent self to be one. This is, in a way, the deepest level of insight and the most radical, potentially liberating teaching of the Buddha. And we see that what we take to be a self is a natural process of cause and effect. Conditions that unfold according to natural law and in that it's a process that is happening by itself. It's not amenable to our will. 
in some ultimate sense. It's not that we're powerless, but it's not ultimately amenable to our will. There's no one that we could say is behind it, controlling it, or, not, or to whom it is all happening. And we see that um, it's clinging to, grasping at identification with experience, some aspect of experience that gives substance to a feeling of I am. It's a feeling that arises out of how we're relating to our experience. And as we start to deeply open to this, we don't have to, it's not that we adopt it as a belief, take it on as, oh, okay, now I'm, I'm not a self anymore, you know? It's not like that. I can see all of you out there. There's all those selves and, you know, there's a Jesse there and a Greg here. It's not that we, we adopt something, some idea, but we just start to open to this process and through this, we just give what we have taken on, adopted, appropriated as I, me, and mine, we give it back to this natural process. We let it go back to nature. We let things arise and cease according to their nature. And non-attachment, letting go, arise as a result of that, of this giving it back. And so freedom, liberation of heart and mind, then you could say, results from this deep letting go of ownership of this whole process. And the cool thing is that this letting go is available in any moment because it results from just seeing the nature of things. And the nature of things is always the nature of things. You could say it results from seeing the truth of the way it really is. And, and if it's really the truth, it's always the truth, not just certain special times. It doesn't uh, become the truth at special times so that we can realize it then. It's always true. So the possibility to open to it is always, always there as well in all kinds of times in our life. And so if you think about it and, and really um, look at these teachings, what we're doing here and now on this retreat, the practices we're doing, they're the same, the same things that the Buddha and his disciples were doing. That hasn't changed. Just like the Buddha and his followers, we're engaged in exploration of our body, mind, and heart, an exploration of nature manifesting there, and an exploration of nature in the world outside our body, mind, and heart. So we're walking the same path that they were walking. And just like them, we live in this world of change and unpredictability, uncontrollability. We have good days and bad days, joys and sorrows, just as the Buddha and his followers had. And the noble truth of, of suffering and its cause and its release, the path leading to its release, that's the same, remains the same. And this impermanent, unreliable, coreless nature of the conditioned world is the same. Nothing has changed. This lawful unfolding of nature it's always been there, always will be there. So there's this timeless quality there. 
these understandings always there to be realized. So I have time for all of the various endings I have. I have multiple endings. I'm going to do them all. Maybe. At least a couple of them. So here's ending number one. You can decide which one you preferred. Please do not let me leave me a note about that. <laughs> and if I... Well, anyway, here's the first one. Some words from Ajahn Chah, who we've uh, quoted at different times. Do not try to become anything. Do not make yourself into anything. Do not be a meditator. Do not become enlightened. When you sit, let it be. When you walk, let it be. Grasp at nothing, resist nothing. You will reach a point where the heart tells itself what to do. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. And then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool. And you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. The Buddha taught us to lay down those things that lack a real abiding essence. If you lay everything down, you will see the truth. If you don't, you won't. That's just the way it is. And when wisdom awakens within you, you will see the truth wherever you look. Truth is all you'll see. I mentioned uh, yesterday that there's a, a collect, some collections of poems uh, written by some of the monks and nuns at the time of the Buddha, kind of enlightenment poems. And I'd like to read just a couple of these from that time and, and a more modern one. Well, this is a poem by a nun named Patachara. When they plow their fields and sow seeds in the earth, when they care for their wives and children, young Brahmins find riches. I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell, checked the bed and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. You know, we, we imagine we'll be in deep meditation and understanding will arise. But what if it was when we were reaching for the light switch? That's the equivalent of what she did. Just closing the door. Just in that moment, understanding could come.
This is a poem by another nun named Mita Kali. She was a, a wandering ascetic. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way, my passions used me, and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. Life is short, age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before this body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. The Buddha's teaching has been done. I love these two poems with this real clear description of this moment of awakening, putting out the light, standing up, seeing the elements of mind and body rise and fall away. That's what we're doing. So I'll end with uh, one last, it wasn't a poem, but it's a writing by a more modern nun, Thai nun, named Mei Chi Gao, who um, died in the 70s, was um, widely held to have been a fully enlightened nun, woman who lived in Thailand not that long ago. And this is uh, from a book about her, quotation, that, uh, something she, she said. I put a couple things together. Body, mind, and essence are all distinct and separate realities. Absolutely everything is known. Earth, water, fire, and wind. Body, feeling, memory, thought, and consciousness. Sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touches, and emotions. Anger, greed, and delusion. All are known. I know them all as they exist in their own natural states, but no matter how much I am exposed to them, I am unable to detect even an instant when they have any power over my heart. In a perfectly still crystal clear pool of water, we can see everything with clarity. The heart at complete rest is still. When the heart is still, wisdom appears easily, fluently. When wisdom flows, clear understanding follows. The world's impermanent, unsatisfactory, and insubstantial nature is seen in a flash of insight, and we become fed up with our attachment to this mass of suffering and loosen our grip. In that moment of coolness, the fires in our heart abate, while freedom from suffering arises naturally of its own accord. This transformation occurs because the original mind is, by its very nature, absolutely pure and unblemished. Purity is its normal state. So we'll just keep sitting quietly for a couple of minutes here.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.